Blog Talk Radio. Hey there, Dr. Ross Green here, coming to you live, as always, from the offices of Live in the Balance here in Portland, Maine. Time for our final edition of Helping Behaviorally Challenging Students of this school year, 2016. Of course, we will be back again next school year, starting in September, Um, but it's, uh, it's our last program for this school year. And um, we are still waiting for our um, principals and uh, assistant superintendent to call in. Uh, But in the meantime, um, good time to reflect in May, of course, when we're running on fumes on how the school year has gone. How have your efforts to help behaviorally challenging students in your building moved in the right direction this year? Good time to think about values, mission, how next school year is going to be better. Um, Once our uh, educators join in here, we have a bunch of email to get through. But I think I am going to start before they join us and just get the ball rolling here. Um, And so I'm going to start with one that I didn't think – was so important for them to weigh in on. Here we go. Hi, Dr. Green. I saw your fantastic webinar yesterday. That would have been about four days ago via Presence Learning. Uh, This is an editorial comment. My understanding is that about 11,000 people registered for that webinar. So this was one of them. My heart and mind were so full with your lecture, and as a new social communication speech therapist, I am so grateful. Well, thank you. I discussed your webinar with our clinic director yesterday. I have two questions involving our kids who are aged 6 to 18 in social thinking and communication groups. Question number one, we teach and model collaborative problem solving to our kids in a group as a lesson proactively. Would you recommend the same steps you have in your model, but adapting it to a peer-to-peer model? Is there a handout or material you recommend that models peer-to-peer proactive problem-solving? I bought your new book, Lost and Found. Perhaps it can be found there. Here's the answer. Perhaps not. It is the same three steps, but we do not have uh, materials for peer-to-peer problem-solving. However... It would be no different, and um, if you think it would be helpful for us to come up with some materials, well, by golly, we will. And so um, either I or one of my colleagues will be in touch with you to see if you have some ideas about what that should look like. Um, So we appreciate the suggestion, and this is how we move forward at Lives in the Balance. We don't always come up with all of these ideas on our own. I think it's a great idea. Here's question number two. I feel sheepish about asking this, but here goes. We are practicing social communication skills in group. For example, attending to conversations, social cues, practicing starting conversations, 
taking turns, connection with others, supportive comments, and listening with our whole body. At times we do use a group reward system wherein group members encourage each other to ask follow-up questions, listen with their whole body, take turns, etc. We have found obtaining these skills requires a certain amount of practice. Many kids in our clinic have practiced these social communication skills in group and now have them in their heart, and mind, and muscle memory and have increased their use of them in therapy and at school and home. A point system, this is the part that I believe she's probably sheepish about, a point system which encourages these emerging skills is a reward system, and that is my quandary. I would be so thankful for your thoughts on this or any reference materials you could pass on regarding my two questions. Delighted. So if I understand the question, I think what you're saying is that you're using a point system to encourage kids to participate in these groups. And I guess if I'm reading between the lines, your question is, do I need a point system? Um, and I'm going to give you my standard response, and that is I think that mastering social skills is far more rewarding than anything a point system can possibly bring to the table. And the thing that I worry about is the slippery slope of conflating the natural consequences of having greater mastery over one's social world with the artificial consequences that we adults tend to throw into the mix to encourage kids um, to participate in what we're trying to get them to do. Um, I think we all would agree uh, doing well in the social world is far more rewarding than anything we could offer that is extrinsic. So the big question is, can we get kids to participate without adding artificial, unnatural reinforcers, which could come back to haunt us later? Here's the other thing I worry about. I've seen this happen in many, many school classrooms. Um, the other thing I worry about in a big way is whether um, what I see happen in a lot of classrooms is that kids who are um, doing well are the ones who are getting the reward, and the kids who are doing poorly are the ones who are not, in which case... Um, the last thing we'd want to see happen is have a kid who is trying hard but not achieving a certain measure of success yet not get rewarded. Um, you know, the red light, yellow light, green light system, the, the kids who skills come to naturally, they're getting all the green lights. And the kids to whom the skills do not come naturally are getting all the red lights. The kids to whom the skills come naturally are getting all the points and all the stickers and all the privileges, and the kids to whom the skills do not come naturally are getting none of that stuff. That can be a problem in a few different ways. Way number one, the kids who um, need our encouragement the most aren't getting it. And way number two, the kids who... Um, oh, I just lost my train of thought. Oh, the kids who aren't getting the reward, even if we're only using a reward system, are sometimes becoming very upset over having not achieved the reward. 
And sometimes, therefore, the failure to achieve an anticipated reward is actually increasing the likelihood of challenging behavior. So it's not like rewards are a benign, harmless type of thing. Uh, They can be big. Um, They can not only reduce challenging behavior, they can increase it. Um, The kids who are most often getting them are the kids who are good at the stuff already. Um, Substituting a unnatural reward when what's going on in the natural world is far more rewarding? I don't know. Do you really need a reward to get a kid to participate in the group? My answer is probably no. But if the answer is yes, I'd keep a very, very close eye on the downsides of potentially using a reward. There's my answer. Now I'm going to bring onto the air one of our main educators. I don't know if this is Nina or Tom, but I'm going to know right now. Hi, how are you? It's Nina. You don't sound like Tom at all. That's how we know. That is true. Um, we, I just answered the first email because you're the first to join on the program. There are two emails that I am dying to get to today from a list of about five that I want to see if we can get done. But we have some callers today, and callers always take first priority on the program. So now that you're on, are you ready for some calls? Absolutely. Here we go. Uh, Area code 413, you're on the air, if I can get the technology to work. And area code 815, you will be on the air with us soon. Let me just make sure. Nope. Let's go. Area code 413, you're on the air. What's up today? Well, hi, Dr. Green. This is Martha Harrington calling. Hi, Martha. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I am good. Let's tell everybody how you know me. How do we know each other? Well, we... We go way um, back. Yes, we do. I tie in Don't mention any names. I'm not going to mention any names. No, no, no no names. (laughs) I taught in Brookline, and you helped a couple of my students. And... um, and I began using collaborative problem solving, um, let me see, over 20, maybe 30 years ago. Now and called Collaborative and Proactive Solutions, but keep going. Yes, yes, Collaborative and Proactive Solutions, I'm sorry. And, no worries. Um, and now I am teaching teachers how to do that. And... Uh, and usually I teach a course for them that's during the school year and uh, so they can practice it with their students. And now um, I'm teaching it for a summer course. And um, so I wanted to give them uh, something that they could do in their classroom right away with <clears throat> with their students and get a real good feel for how this works. And so my question is, if they were to be doing whole class problem solving, how would the alpha come into play? 
Well, the ELSIP has two components to it, and the ELSIP as it's designed is intended more for individual kids than for a group. But okay. there's two sections on the ELSIP. There's a lagging skill section and an unsolved okay. problem section. I don't know that I would use the lagging skill section in, in application to an entire group, but we also have one of my principal colleagues on the call with us here, Nina Diaron, who's at Central School in South Berwick. So she may have a different opinion, so we'll get Nina to weigh in in just a second. Um, but the unsolved problems list, I think that there is something, whether it's an individual kid or a class, there's something to be said for documenting and identifying and memorializing the problems that confront the group and um, being systematic in trying to go about solving them. So that's the other thing mm -hmm. the ELSA brings to the table. Not only does it uh, help us identify an individual kid's lagging skills, and I don't know that I would do that with a group. Um, I don't know if a group can have lagging skills, but who knows. Um, I'm giving Nina time for thinking here. Um, but <laughs> groups definitely have expectations that the group as a whole are having difficulty meeting. Uh, in other words, unsolved problems. And that's the other thing the ELSIP helps us do is it helps us be very specific about expectations either an individual child or a group might be having difficulty meeting. And there I could see the ELSIP being um, extremely useful. But let's see what Nina thinks too. Nina, what do you think? Yep, I totally agree. I think that the ELSIP could help you for the unsolved problem um, part, but you know we do a lot of plan Bs with groups, and we don't do the lagging skills for the group, but we do do the unsolved problems, and also it really helps you to figure out how you're going to open up the conversation, so being right. able to talk about it and talk about it in that frame um, with a team beforehand helps you to do your opening in, you know, steps, so that's really helpful and brings a, a lot to the surface when you're working with a group. And I think, you know, when you are able to have that kind of absorbed as part of your language, sometimes it's also just you're doing plan B with the group without even some planning beforehand because it just becomes how you speak. So, But the ELSIP definitely helps to have that first step and to get your thinking in place before you begin. Martha, does yes, that help? Yes, I can see that. Um, and that's, that's something, yes, that's very helpful. I was wondering, um, you know, where uh, we have such diverse classrooms now, if there are students in there, there's usually about five to six students in every classroom who do have some lagging, some significant lagging skills that ca cause frustration. And I was wondering if um, we should take a look at the lagging skills for them ahead of time so that we um, maybe can talk with them ahead of time and prepare them for the conversation. Uh, I don't know. Would that be helpful? Nina, what do you think? Um, I think it's always helpful to help, and hopefully with those kids you would have the LSEP, so you would have that information, and it could absolutely help you when you know the children's lacking skills with how to, you know, being proactive with the conversation, um, you know, just to get to know your 
to know your students, and particularly if you're bringing up an unsolved problem that you know is going to be particularly hard for for certain children. I think it's always great to have that information, and, and the more information, the better when you're going into a conversation. And like I said, especially if it's going to be a problem, an unsolved problem that's going that's even harder for a student with um, many lagging skills, if, if that makes sense. It does make sense. Uh, I was thinking that perhaps um, they could have uh, an individual problem-solving uh, talk afterward because they may need support built in that they would yeah. come up with, you know. Okay. Absolutely. That's kind of wonderful. Well, differentiating it. Yep. <laughs> well, and one great. way to think about it is that um, – Participating in a group discussion, group problem-solving discussion, is an expectation. And if, a, if we believe that a student is likely to have difficulty meeting that expectation, it becomes an unsolved problem. And mm-hmm. now it fits perfectly into let's discuss it with the student proactively, see if we can yeah. get out in front of it before the discussion takes place, and solve it before problems come up. Um, I think that fits perfectly with what the model is about and what we might be trying to do. This is great. Thank you so much. Now, Martha, it's if it goes well, with you. you as Pardon? well. It's been a long time. And I know that the um, my recollection, uh, just because you and I communicate sometimes, is that the uh, two kids who we knew way back when – um, are now esteemed members of their communities. So, um, when, you know, it doesn't always go that way. But, uh, boy, if, if we needed two poster kids for kids who were having tremendous difficulties way back when and are now doing swimmingly, we couldn't ask for two better ones than the ones you and I shared 20 years ago. That's true. And one even followed in your footsteps. Isn't that amazing? Wow. That's great. That's great. Isn't that something? Yeah, Martha, if these if if the group CPS goes well, um let me know and we'll come out and film if we have permission group sessions so that people can see what it looks like to use CPS in a group. Oh, great idea. Okay, I will let you know. I'll be in touch and thanks to both of you. Have a great summer. Thank you. you. Bye-bye. Take care. Uh, now, there's there's a teacher that um, every uh, educator should model themselves after, right there. Wow, absolutely. Um, heart of gold, great with kids, um, couldn't ask for a better combination. That's great. Um, now, the other caller left the uh, program, and so we're going to turn our attention to some of these emails. Does that sound okay? Okay. Here we go. This one says, Dr. Green, I read your book over the summer, and I can't stop thinking about it. I came and saw you in Portland, Oregon, and it helped me see a particular student in a new way, which has helped our relationship. My anger is toward the system in which I work. I have a behavior program, that's in quotes, where my district district took half of the tip-top of students with challenging behaviors, and I case managed them. It is a dysfunctional school system under the guise of inclusion. It is not supported. I can't be the single-handed person to sustain that process. 
And so at this time of my first year with the district, all my students are having lots and lots of challenges. The administration, building and special education, response, along with parents, is to use lots of tickets and food, and this is how they try to fix the problem. I see major systematic issues that I cannot tackle myself. I try and try to communicate, but um, my challenging behavior is to shut down and cry when demands are high. What advice do you have for one teacher to tackle this feeling solo? And can tickets and toys be used with CPS? Right now I see them reverting back to classical positive behavior supports without looking at some historical systemic issues and this blaming the kids for it not working. My goal is for my kids to be succeeding. Four exclamation points. Help, please. Well, um, going solo is never going to be easy when it comes to changing a system. But Nina, I'm going to toss that one to you first, and then I'll weigh in. <laughs> um, sure. I think I think it, that is a huge challenge for sure. But I, you know, sort of think of the mindset of doing what you can do. Um, you know, following the CPS model, where really you can't. There's a lot of things that are out of your control in that situation for sure, but what you can do with the children is still in your control, and I do think that that makes a difference even though you're um, up against some you know, you know, diff very differing opinions about what works with kids. You can still use CPS with the relationships and with, with problem solving and everything you can do within the walls of the classroom. Um, and... I think you can only you can only change what you can change by doing what you know is right with the children and and trying that balance of trying to do what you need to do with the systems but trying knowing what you're doing is really working and and it still can work even against some of those hurdles for sure um I, I think it's really hard to have those built-in rewards when you're doing CPS but I don't think it's impossible that as long as you're doing the uh, plan B conversations and using the LSUP and changing your lens, you're making a difference. You know, I think that's what that's what I would say. And I guess what I would say is I think that um, so long as it, this educator feels like she's fighting the entire world, mm -hmm. um, she, she may um, not feel as successful as she could. Right. And so what we're not gleaning from her email is whether there are people of like minds, perhaps in positions of authority or perhaps in the same position as her or perhaps um, people who she works with, who she could get the ball rolling on a book study just to feel like she's not the Lone Ranger, just to feel like she's not flying solo, and see if she can get a little momentum going. Um, and the reality is, even if she gets no momentum going, at least she has people who she can turn to for support and them who they can turn to for support if they feel like they're beating their head against the wall and all feel like they want to... Uh, cry and withdraw. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
um, and shut down. And so that's the other thing that I might focus on in terms of my advice. This is very hard to do if you feel like you're flying solo. Um, and sometimes if you can demonstrate success in, in a small place, people start to pay attention and people start to believe in what you're doing. Um, but that's very hard to accomplish when you are trying to do it all by yourself. Mm-hmm. And so that's the only thing I would add to what you're saying, and that is, boy, it sure would be nice if this teacher could create a support system for herself. Um, yeah. That's my two cents on that. Definitely. Shall and, we turn to another you, email? Well, no, good. Let's finish with yeah. that one. Well, I was going to say, and sometimes if you reach out you know, to the counselors or a psycho- somebody that sort of has that counseling background, you can find somebody that's, you know, that has some like-minded, but they're, they might just keep looking. There'll be somebody there that I think that's a great idea to have a partnership and to try some of these things together. And, and exactly like you said, once you have a challenging situation that starts to improve, that really does make people interested in wanting to learn more about it. I'm sort of uh, reflecting on how you got the ball rolling at uh, your school. Mm-hmm. And you had some you had some natural teammates available to you. You had a principal who was supportive. Mm-hmm. You had a few teachers who were of like minds. Um, yep. And I'm, I think that it would have been a much harder row to hoe had you not had a supportive principal and had you not had people who were sort of learning right along with you, but you had some just mm-hmm. ridiculously marvelous classroom teachers who were um, thinking along similar lines, and that made it a lot easier for you when you bumped into either people in your building who were not um, yep. of like minds or yep. systemic stuff that has come up for you that yes. I'm aware of at various points yep. along the way that would have been much more challenging for you if you were an individual. But um, you all banded together and, um, you know, uh, did it together, and I think that made it a yep. lot easier. Oh, my goodness, absolutely. There are some things that systemically have come down the pike that have um, uh, affected your building that I think would have been much harder to deal with if uh, you were flying solo. Definitely. I feel very fortunate, <laughs> and I think that made all the difference for sure. And, you know, we really are allowed. We have a lot of site-based leadership, so we can you know, do things differently in our district and the different schools, which also makes a big difference. You know, it's one of the hard things um, because, you know, um, I was talking with a colleague recently who had a building who was doing CPS just incredibly well when he or she was transferred to another building. Yep. And what I have heard from him or her is that uh, now with a new, well-intentioned, but not very CPS-oriented leader in place, people are leaving the building in droves, and wow. um, uh, they are not doing much CPS in the building. I've seen the same thing happen. And, you know, um, in some school systems, uh, they plan for principals to leave if things are going really well the mentality is that principal belongs in a different school so that he or she oh, can right. make things go well in that school too. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but the same thing happens in inpatient psychiatry and it's the same thing happens in residential facilities and prisons. You get a program going and it's working really well. And then sometimes the system imposes stuff on you and, um, makes the whole thing extremely challenging. Yep. But you do the best you can, as you said. Ready for another email? Yep. Sure. This one says, hi, I am new to your work and super excited about learning as much as I can. While I am learning and implementing, I have a question. What do you suggest about how to respond to behavior? I am with a new student, and the transition isn't going well. He is rejecting me, yelling and making motions to bite or hit, although he is not out to hurt me, just to show me he is not pleased. Others are telling me to be very firm with him, but it makes matters worse. Instead, I am just calmly saying stop or removing myself. I am not reprimanding him at all. Also, his verbal communication is very limited. I kind of had that sense. He speaks mostly echolalia. So when I ask him questions, he mostly repeats what I said. So collaborating is going to take some time. In the meantime, what is your thinking on responding to the behaviors? Thank you so much for your time. (laughs) Um, You want to take first crack at that one too? Sure. Um, I think that's a really a common one, and I think that that happens a lot in the beginning when you're just starting to implement CPS for sure. But I think the uh, author of the email sounds like she or he uh, is doing it exactly how I would do would do it is um, really just being curious and being in building that relationship and having empathy while trying to. Make sure that you schedule some Plan B conversations in good moments, and it might be really hard in the beginning when um, you know when the challenging behavior is not yet getting uh, you know improving. But doing the LSEP, making sure you're ready, scheduling those Plan Bs, and continuing to build relationships, having empathy, being curious, and it takes time. And, and children that have a lot of lagging skills, it's it's going to take longer. But it sounds like this author has a wonderful attitude towards towards beginning CPS and um, just being with the child and, you know, that curiosity and getting to know them. And I think it's wonderful to um, sort of just be present while you're beginning this journey instead of trying to figure out how to, how to respond in a way that's going to change behavior because that's, you know, that's, it's not going to work that way, but knowing you practicing plan B and getting ready to have those proactive conversations. It sounds wonderful though. It does. It's very exciting mm-hmm. to try to do yeah. CPS with a kid with language processing delays. The mm-hmm. I want to make a distinction between setting limits on behavior. In other words, letting a kid know that it's not okay and that you disapprove mm-hmm. versus consequencing behavior. Um, where you are punishing or rewarding the kid for a replacement behavior. They are different things. Um, I think that you can set limits without consequencing. And, of course, and we covered this on a question, I think, before you got on the, the line on the, on the program, but um, mm-hmm. do consequences add value in this scenario? And I'm always asking myself, okay, so if we – if, if this teacher is right, the kid is um, making motions to bite or hit, 
uh, but not out to get her or hurt her, but just to show that she is that he is not pleased. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and by by the way, being firm just does not necessarily mean imposing consequences. Being firm means knowing what your expectations are and letting the kid know that you disapprove of an action, right? But we're never going to see any other action on the part of the kid. And by the way, you don't need consequences to show that you disapprove. You just can show that you disapprove. You don't. Exactly. So they are in very different categories, even though people sometimes treat them as exactly the same thing. But if we added consequences to the mix then we are adding consequences to a kid who we seem to be agreeing isn't capable of doing it any better at the moment. So I wouldn't get rid of the disapproving part because we do want the kid to know that the behavior is not okay. But what we need to build in is the skill building part. If this kid needs a way, a structured systematic way, and there are some examples of how to do this on the Lives and Balance website, and there are some examples in some of the books about how to concretize problems kids encounter and how to depict those things in pictures. Um, If this kid is having difficulty communicating and is biting to communicate, we need a more adaptive mechanism for the kid to communicate what he needs to communicate so that he's not biting and um, hitting. He'll stop biting and hitting when he knows how to communicate in a different way. Whether adult-imposed consequences are going to add anything to that mix beyond disapproving of the maladaptive behavior and teaching a more adaptive way to the, for the kid to communicate what he wants to communicate, I have serious doubts about whether adding consequences to the mix are going to add value. Any uh, further thoughts on important, that? Well, I just think that's such an important point um, in the same regards to as when you begin CPS knowing that it doesn't mean you don't have expectations. Um, you, I think that's just really important because sometimes in the beginning – people confuse that and think that it, you know, but you have to have expectations because the unmet expectations that has the unsolved problem. So I think CPS is just as much a voice for the students and the children, but it also is a voice for the teachers and the staff. So I just think that's, you know, it's not, it's a collaborative process. So it's, it's not just whatever the child wants. It's also the needs of the adult. It's a, it's so collaborative. And I just think that's key because sometimes that's misunderstood and it's really an important aspect. Ready for another email? Sure. I love this one. (laughs) Uh, We have many students who are behaviorally challenging I have enjoyed learning about the CPS approach, and we are slowly implementing it in my school. Um, One of the questions I had was, what percentage of behavioral issues are due to lagging skills? In all the research, are there other factors that might contribute to a perceived lack of motivation and or behavioral issues? So, Nina... (laughs) <laughs> uh, <laughs> <The> quiz. <laughs> what, what what percentage of behavioral issues can be traced back to lagging skills? I got my number. 
Um, yeah. And it's going to be hard to do the over on my number, just just in case you're wondering if you bet on the over <laughs> or the under. I'm giving okay. you a hint here. It's going oh, to be good. very hard to go over. Yep. Well, I do so agree what's, that 100% what's your number? for sure. Mine's 100%. I got it. I got it right. <laughs> that's good. Um, I was thinking the same thing. Mine's 100% too. <laughs> oh, good. Um, but, but to the other part of the – but no, here's the interesting thing. I think that uh, the distinction here is between causal factors mm-hmm. and exacerbating factors. And I think that in schools, I know that you've experienced this firsthand, mm-hmm. we try to spend a lot of time thinking about nature versus nurture. How did this kid get to be this way? And um, I think that all of us are amateur social workers, and we mm-hmm. tend to focus, nothing, nothing against social workers, by the way, but we tend to focus on environmental factors and family factors and sometimes genetic factors. The problem is about which we can do nothing. And so does trauma exacerbate potential behavioral challenges? Of course. Fetal alcohol syndrome? Of course. Mm -hmm. Attachment issues? Of course. But do they cause them? Um, there are many kids who have trauma histories who are not behaviorally challenging. What explains that? There are kids who've been exposed to substances in utero who are far less behaviorally challenging than others. What explains that? What explains that is skills. Mm -hmm. And so um, even though we have students who are behaviorally challenging and who come from circumstances that are um, far less than ideal. We really take 10 major steps forward when we think less about the presumed causal factor, the the presumed uh, cause of the lagging skills, and Mm -hmm. focus exclusively on the expectations the kid is having difficulty meeting and the skills that are making it difficult for the kid to meet those expectations. So, are there factors that can exacerbate behavioral issues? Sure. I guess the other point I wanted to make before you weigh in here is I don't ever see kids as being unmotivated. So um, I certainly don't put motivation and behavioral issues in the same sentence. I wouldn't even use the word motivation. As people who've heard me speak lately know that I say, skills are the engine pulling the train. Motivation is just the caboose. But let's get your thoughts on that, too. No, I I just so agree, and I think that one of the biggest gifts um, CAPS has given me is kind of being freed from a lot of discussion on, you know, why is a a student, you know, displaying the challenging behaviors that they are. And I think, you know, it through and for definitely great intent, but just that was what we did is spend a lot of time trying to diagnose and trying to figure out and trying to figure out why the student is, is doing this. And I think in um, unintentionally, it just ends up making you feel hopeless because you feel like, well, I can't, you know, it was so much trauma. I have I can't do anything about this now. So I think the biggest gift is freeing you from that and knowing that looking at the skills and the unsolved problems gives you such a huge, you know, so much ability to be able to solve the problems. So I just think that's a huge thing. Um, also, the other part of that is 
I think you, we can tend to in schools try to do a lot of talking and figuring out if a behavior is a choice or not. It kind of along the same lines, and I think CPS has really freed me from that as well. As to you know, you can debate back and forth if 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 a child comes to school and, and runs out of the room was well on that day was it be, because of a lagging skill on this day because he just wasn't motivated or you know just makes you be able to really concentrate on the child and concentrate on solving problems instead of talking a lot about things that you might not be able to solve and also really you really just don't know so concentrate on what you can what you can do about it well and i think that that is a key point and that is educators and all other caregivers think that the burden for figuring out what's getting in the kid's way is on them. The burden on figuring out why a kid is having difficulty meeting a particular expectation falls to the adult. And I think that we put way too much pressure on ourselves to figure it out when we can't. Um, We theorize, we hypothesize, we have nature versus nurture debates. Um, The pressure that we should be feeling is on gathering information from the kid so that we finally do understand what's getting in the kid's way. And this, as I always say, is where many of the jaw-dropping moments come in this model because Mm -hmm. it's when we start talking with kids proactively to find out what's making it difficult for them to meet a particular expectation that um, we so often hear things that are completely different from what we were thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is why I've been talking in my talks lately about living an assumption-free life. I call it assumption-free living. What I've been saying is um, you know what happens when you assume, Mm -hmm. but when you are not assuming and when you are not feeling the burden to figure it out on your own, you have freed yourself up to ask. Ask the kid. Ask the kid what's getting in the way. Um, And that's not only very freeing, but also extremely informative because then you find out what's really going on. Absolutely. I think that when you build a, a environment where you're free to be able to really listen to the children and and being curious, you do you have that burden taken off that you have to come in and solve all the problems yourself and, and as an administrator, um you know, I think that's really important that you're not feeling like everyone's watching you to to fix the behavior in the moment that it's you're being curious and being proactive and it's a very safe environment to to be in and very collaborative and in the end just you know helps not only the children it just helps everybody in the school and on that note we are going to call it a day for today and a school year for us. I know you've got wow. many weeks left, but as far as this radio program is concerned, um, this is the last program of the year. I hope you'll do this again next year. Your input is always so valuable. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. I love it. So, of course, and thank you for everything. It's been a great year. It has been a very good year. We've had some very interesting programs and covered a lot of territory. Um, so for all of those who you, of those of you who listen through iTunes or on the Lives in the Balance website, we will be back in September and we'll get this show started again. So Nina, great. have a great rest of the school year, and we will talk with you again in September. Perfect. Thank you so much. Take care. <laughs>